Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. He writes, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the, of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask him to teach us his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your uh, for what the guidance you give us uh, through it. We thank you especially for the fact that it's there in your word and your scriptures that we see and hear and read of the gospel of Christ, your son, the gospel of our salvation. We pray once again that you would uh, give us an ear to hear, like the, the verse even says here in our text, that we might hear what the Spirit says to the churches, even to our church this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning is the third of Christ's seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, you might recall if you were here or if you're familiar with the, the, these chapters, the first letter was written to the church that was located in the city of Ephesus. That church, like many in our own day, uh, we saw had a lot going for it. They were doing a lot of things well, and yet they had a problem. They had left or forsaken what? Their first love. Christ's second letter was to the church located in the city of Smyrna. That church also, like many in our own day in various parts of the world, even as Christians just prayed about, uh, that church was suffering intense persecution and affliction for the name of Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, we read of that. This third letter uh, is addressed to the church in Pergamum, and the church in Pergamum was a church that was compromising with the world. They were compromising with the world. They had tolerated false teaching in their midst, and this false teaching was leading many in the church astray and even causing them to fall into the sins of idolatry and sexual immorality. Now it goes almost without saying, I think, that in a lot of ways, this, this description that we read of of the church in Pergamum would be a very fitting description of many churches in our own day. Many churches in our day are far too tolerant of false teaching in their midst. They're far too tolerant of immorality in their midst. In fact, some, just like the church in Corinth that Paul wrote to in 1 Corinthians, uh, some seem to kind of wear this toleration as a badge of honor. The, the Corinthians, if you remember, Paul wrote to them that they were proud. Rather than mourning, rather than being humbled and, and confronting the sin, they were proud of the, how open they were to this immorality that Paul even tells them that pagans don't do what these people in your church were doing. And they should have been humbled and fear and not be 
prideful of such things. That toleration and compromise with false teaching that happened in the days of this church in the first century and also happens in our day, that kind of toleration and compromise always ends up leading to the acceptance of that false teaching. Once you let it in the door, soon that toleration becomes acceptance. False teaching also always affects how we worship. False teaching always will end up affecting how we live. False teaching can't help but lead to false worship. That's what idolatry is. It's false worship. False teaching always leads to false living, such as sexual immorality. Can there be any doubt that we see the fruits of that very same kind of compromise in the church today? We are, in a sense, still living in Pergamum in many Ways. And so the Lord calls upon his church to do one thing in verse 16. And it, it's summed up in one word, repent. He calls his church to repent. He called the church in Pergamum to repent, and it's still his call to the church today. It's his command to us today to repent as needed. And if we refuse to repent of these things as his church, what does he tell us in our text? He doesn't bear that sharp two-edged sword in vain. If we don't guard the church from false teaching and false living, he himself will come and fight or war against those who hold to those teachings in his church with the sword of his mouth. Now, we're going to follow, my outline is going to sound a lot similar to the previous ones because these letters follow a similar pattern. And rather than trying to come up with a new, clever-sounding outline, which wouldn't do anybody any good, we're just going to follow the outline that these, these letters give to us. And so the first thing we're going to see this morning is Christ. Christ's word of commendation, his word of commendation, it's the way he starts these letters, it tells him something, that, something that's good about them before he gets into, at times, uh, his words of correction. And the first thing he does uh, before he even gets to commending them is he tells them something about, he reminds them of something about himself as, as the Lord. He tells them who the speaker and sender of this letter is which really makes all the difference in the world. It's one thing to get a letter from an apostle, which many had done, the letters in our New Testaments, letters from Paul or John or Peter. Well, this goes beyond that. This is a letter from the, the, the glorified Lord, Jesus Christ. It says in verse 12, And to the angel, or messenger, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He, he tells them something about himself. He reminds them about something about himself uh, that they needed to hear that had direct application to their situation, to what they were dealing with. And now he often in these letters, what does he do? He identifies himself by a snippet or a portion of something that he had shown back in chapter 1 and that vision he gave John of the glorified Christ. Back in Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16, is that vision that John had of the Lord uh, in his glory, and this vision of what Christ is like, not what he looks like, but what he is like. And there in that vision uh, of the Lord Jesus, John tells us that he saw uh, this glorified Christ having, quote, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Again, this certainly isn't what Jesus looks like. He doesn't have a sword sticking out of his mouth. Uh, but it's meant to teach us about the weapon of his divine warfare. And as we see in our text here in, in chapter 2, as we're going to see, that sword isn't just for show. You know, some people have swords that are for show. They, they traveled overseas or something, and they have a sword, you know, mounted on their mantle or up on the wall. 
Uh, in the military, sometimes we have uh, another Marine Corps in their dress uniform has a sword. It is not a sword to be used. It's not a bayonet. It's for show. It's for part of the uniform. Jesus' sword is not just for show. He will not hesitate to wage war against his enemies and defend his church. And he'll defend his, his church even against those enemies that are within the church. You know, when I was, uh, I spent some time in the Navy, as uh, I know some of you have as well, I spent time in the military, and uh, you take a, an oath, part of your military oath is, when you first hear it, it might sound, I won't recite the whole thing, it might sound kind of odd, but you swear an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, and what's the phrase I'm going to say? Foreign and domestic. What does domestic mean? Someone here. Not all the enemies come from out there. Well, that's just as true in the church, if not more so, than it is when it comes to the military defense of a nation. Some of the enemies of God's church rise from within that church. It's not all exterior to it. And so the Lord now offers a word of commendation to this church in Pergamum. In our text, once again, he shows them, by by showing his knowledge of them, he reminds them, that he really is the one that walks among the lampstands. He really does know what they're doing. He knows what they're enduring, what they're going through. He knows their problems, their struggles. Uh, He's intimately acquainted with everything that they were going through. In verse 13, he writes, I know, same same words he uses in the other letters, I know where you dwell. He's not just saying he knows their address. He's saying, "I, I know where you dwell And where do they dwell? Where Satan's throne is. He knows how bad it was in Pergamum. He knows how bad it was there. And he says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And then he adds again, where Satan dwells. He he wants them to know he knows how bad it is where they are. He knows the kinds of things, the pressures, the dangers that they endured. He even knows their faithfulness to him, that that they endured the kind of persecution and did not deny his faith and held fast to his name, even when it cost someone named Antipas his life uh, when he was killed among them. That reference to Satan's throne might be kind of a strange reference to us. We're not really sure exactly what he's getting at besides how bad it was there. It may be a reference to the cult of emperor worship that had spread throughout the, the Roman Empire, uh, that was something that was uh, that happened in Pergamum. They would, they would. There was a temple to the Roman emperor. You would say, you know, Caesar is Lord, kind of thing. You would have to, you know, to do that, you'd be denying that Christ is Lord. We don't know if that's exactly what happened to Antipas, but it's likely that may have been the case. It might have been a reference to the rampant paganism that characterized Pergamum at that time. Like many places in the the ancient Near East, they what, what did they have in East, in, in uh, this part of Asia? There were temp- pagan temples all over the place. Ephesus, remember the city of Ephesus? The first letter was written to Ephesus. They had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana or Artemis. Well, Pergamum was not much different in that regard. And yet, in spite of all that, this church had held fast to the name of Jesus Christ. They had not denied the faith, even when that kind of a witness had led to the martyrdom of someone named Antipas, on whom the Lord gives the wonderful title. Imagine hearing Jesus give this to you as a title. He doesn't just say Antipas, the faithful witness, does he? Antipas, my faithful witness. Notice in verse 13, Jesus uses the word my 
Sometimes those little words make all the difference. Three different times he talks about my name and my faith and my faithful witness. Now we read these words of commendation from the Lord uh, to this church in Pergamum, and before we get to his rebuke or correction to them, I think we need to take a hard look at ourselves in the mirror. Uh, we, don't, we don't dwell in Pergamum. Obviously, we, we there's many things about their circumstances that we cannot identify with. We aren't living under the, Rome, the, the reign of the Roman Empire. Uh, but these things are spoken for our benefit too, aren't they? And so where he, what Christ commends, we should seek to emulate. When he gives a word of commendation to any of these seven churches, we should look at ourselves and say, is, is that something that would characterize us? Could Jesus commend us for the same thing? And if not, we too should repent and seek to turn back to, from those things and turn back to the things that Jesus commends. Now, we too live in a culture, I think, especially in this particular state in which we live, that is increasingly more and more pagan and is increasingly more and more hostile to the Christian faith and to those who bear testimony to the name of Jesus Christ. Do we too not live in a culture that increasingly more and more has no fear of God before their eyes and which seems to idolize the power of the state as if it were the end-all, be-all of all things. You know, the old, you know the old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. Well, when a, when a place, when a people, when a country turns its back on the Lord, uh, they don't turn their back on the Lord and turn to nothing. They'll, some other god, small g, is going to take its place. Well, in, a, in, our, in our particular place, in a lot of ways, in addition to the, the rank paganism that is kind of perking back up, uh, it seems to me that, that many look at the state to take the place of God. The state is the one that's supposed to watch over everybody, that's supposed to make sure everybody has what they need and all these things. Uh, the, the nature abhors a vacuum and so does our state. Well, so it's in a lot of ways, while no one tells us to say Caesar is Lord, our culture in a way deifies the state. And anybody who defies that and seeks to, to uphold Christ as the Lord of all sometimes will pay a price And all this have we held fast to the name of Jesus Christ? Have we kept back ourselves from denying the faith both in our words as well as in how we live? In, in this particular regard, we would do well to emulate and imitate the faith of the church in the city of Pergamum that Christ writes or speaks this letter to. Well, that brings us to verses 14 to 15, and that's Christ's word of correction. First, he gives a word of commendation. And then he gives a word of correction or rebuke to his church. In verses 14 to 15, the scripture says, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. Not something you want to hear from the Lord. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the Lord knew of their testimony, uh, their faithfulness to Christ's name, and he commended them for it. Nevertheless, he tells them, like he did with the first church, Ephesus back in verse 4, that he had something against them. That should get our attention, shouldn't it? If his commendation should get our attention, his, when Jesus says, I have something against you, to his church... That should get our attention. It's not something that we want to hear from our Lord, but if, but if he does say it, we need to pay attention 
And it's something we also, we have to take this to heart as well. We, we need to be willing. That's why these letters are here. What, is, what does it say in every one of the letters? Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, if the shoe fits, wear it. He's saying, try this on and see if it fits. That's what these letters are, both for the, the rebukes as well as the commendations. What, what was their error in sin? What was it that Jesus had against the church at Pergamum, and I think against many churches in our own day as well? He tells them that they had some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you know your Old Testament, maybe some of you don't, but that name probably rings a bell. It's one of my, if, you were, if you've been taught the Bible since you were a kid, the story of Balaam, because it's kind of funny in some ways, uh, probably jumps off the page at you, and you might remember the name of Balaam. He was a prophet back in the book of Numbers. You can see his story back in chapters 21 through 25. In those chapters, you read the story of Balak, the king of the Moabites. And what he does is he tries to get Balaam, who was a prophet, he tries to pay Balaam to curse Israel. Now, if he's really a prophet, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? And you can see why that would be a bad thing for him to try to do. Now, the Lord, the Lord prevented Balaam from doing that. Not that Balaam didn't give it, give it the old college try, right? He, he tried to, you know, I can't, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I can't say anything but what the Lord tells me, Balak. And Balak's like, yeah, but I'll give you this. Oh, if you give me all the money in the world, all the silver there is, I can't say anything, something that God doesn't tell me to say. You know what, though? That's a lot of money. Let me go back and see if the Lord might change his mind and let me, you know, give me a, a, a permission slip to do, uh, to do you a, a solid. Now, you might recall that in one of those three instances, uh, Balaam was rescued from the wrath of the Lord by his donkey. Remember the donkey? Again, paraphrasing for the sake of time. He's going a certain way, and what does the donkey see that Balaam doesn't see? The angel of the Lord, and what does the angel of the Lord have in his hand? An unsheathed sword. It'd be one thing just to have a sword, you know, in the holster, so to speak, in the, in the sheath. The angel had it in his hand. You know what they say about pulling a gun? If you're going to pull a gun, you've got to be prepared to use it. Well, he had the sword unsheathed. What does it mean? He was going to use it. And so the donkey wasn't so dumb. The donkey stops. The donkey wanders off the road in the middle of the field. He, he beats the donkey all three times. He beats this donkey. The donkey's like, I'm not going there. Finally, he got to a point where there was nowhere to go. The donkey couldn't turn away, couldn't go the other way. So what does he do? He just stops and lays down. And Balaam doesn't know what's going on. Balaam thinks he's taking a nap or doing something. And well, I thought I trained this dumb donkey. And so he starts beating it. And what does, the, what does God do? He opens the mouth of the donkey and lets him talk. He opens the, the mouth of the donkey and lets him, lets him talk. Uh, so the donkey speaks to Abraham, or excuse me, to, to Balaam, sorry, and tells him, hey, you know, why are you, why are you hitting me? And apparently this didn't make Balaam think this was odd. Uh, he has a conversation with his donkey. And then what happens, it says in verse 31 of Numbers 22, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword, with a drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. So the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and then he opened the eyes of the prophet. So Balaam would have been struck down and killed if it weren't for his donkey. And the donkey, I think, being able to see what the prophet, the seer, didn't see, and being able to talk, it had to be kind of a strange but uh, oddly fitting rebuke to this wayward prophet who thought that he could sell his services to the highest bidder. 
How many in our day do the same kind of thing? They don't seek God's glory and teach God's word faithfully. They go to the highest bidder in, in some sense. Now, now Balaam, the story doesn't stop there. God did keep Balaam from pronouncing a curse upon Israel. And so he spared, in a sense, had mercy on his people and on Balaam for a time as well. And though, while he didn't pronounce a curse upon Israel, he did find a way, the Bible says, and Revelation mentions it here, to cause Israel trouble. In Numbers 31.16 it says this, uh, Behold these, that's the Moabite women, Behold these on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. In other words, he couldn't pronounce a curse upon the people for King uh, Balak, the Moabite king. So what did he do instead? He did the next best thing. Let me tell you, here's what you do. This prophet counseled the king of, of Moabites on how to trip up the people of Israel. He counseled them and advised them to lead the Israelites into compromise through intermarriage with the Moabite women. They were unequally yoked, and bad things happened. The incident is recorded for us in some detail in Numbers chapter 25. In verses 1 through 3 there we read, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their God. So Israel yoked himself to Baal, the false god. Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Notice how being unequally yoked ends up kind of leading to, without, without fail, being yoked to false gods and false worship. And what did that lead to? The anger of the Lord being kindled against Israel. Israel herself. Now, do you see why the Lord mentions in our text the teaching of Balaam? You know, we're not talking about a prophet with a donkey in, in our day, but we are talking about teachers, so-called prophets, that do lead the church into idolatry and into immorality. That's, that's why he brings up Balaam here in our text as well. And what was the result of, of God's anger being kindled? What was the result of God's just judgment for that sin, for that, for that whoring with the daughters of Moab and, and being yoked to Baal? Uh, a plague came upon Israel, and 24,000 people, Numbers 25.9 says, 24,000 people died from a plague. And that plague was not an accident. That plague was not a coincidence. The scripture makes it very plain. This, this, is, this is what led to that. This was the, an act of God's just judgment and chastisement upon his people. It was an instance of the sword of the Lord being used in judgment upon his own people. You know, the Bible says uh, judgment begins where? Judgment begins with the house or the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of the unbeliever and those who don't obey the gospel of God. That's what this story is meant to teach us in our day. And it's the very thing the Lord threatens in our text in, in the last book of the Bible was that he had a sword in his hand. What does he do? He calls his church to repent. And if they didn't repent, he would come to them soon and wage war against them, them being the ones who taught and tolerated these things with the sword of his mouth. Brothers and sisters, this is not just some Old Testament thing. Is it? 
Sometimes we kind of think that way. We shouldn't. Does God change? No. Thank God God does not change. Does God's ways with his people change? No. No, we don't have two Bibles. We have Old and New Testament tell the same story, don't they? They tell us the same gospel, the same the same things of the Messiah who was to come and then the Messiah, the Messiah who came. Um, it's, it's for good reason that, that the Lord actually points us back to this incident from the days of Moses and Israel, and he uses it to us for an example and for a lesson, uh, an example of the very same compromises and sins that we too must be careful not to commit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.11, talking about Israel, talking about what happened in the Old Testament, uh, he said that those things that happened to them in the Old Testament, quote, happened to them as an example, and then he says, but they were written down for our instruction. What's he saying? He's telling you how we should look at the Old Testament narratives. He's saying all these stories in the Old Testament, like the ones we read in our scripture reading, Genesis 26, pick an Old Testament narrative from Abraham, from the days of Isaac, from Jacob, from the days of Moses, from the days of the, of the conquering of the, of the promised land, the dividing of it, the, 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 the Babylonian captivity. All those things were written for our instruction that we might not do the same things that they did wrong, that we might have faith in Christ and follow him all of our days. It's, they're written down for our instruction as lessons for us. There are many people in the church today who are false prophets and false teachers who would lead God's people astray, who would lead us to compromise with the world around us, even with false religion and sexual immorality. If you don't, if you haven't noticed that, um, I, I don't want to be insulting, but it's almost like I, I wonder if you're paying attention. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's more common than it is, than it's not. Has the Lord changed? No. Is his anger still not kindled against such things in his church? It is. Let he who has an ear, what? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is God still not jealous for his bride? What or who is the bride of Christ? The church. Well, that brings us to the third thing we see in our text. It's Christ's call to repentance. What's the remedy that he offers? He doesn't just say, that's it. I'm done with you all. He offers a remedy, a solution, a cure, and that thing is repentance. In verses 16 to 17, you read, Jesus says, therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Therefore, repent. What does it mean to repent? He's telling them to turn from the false teaching and sin and turn back to God. Repentance, the old Hebrew word, is just to turn. Same thing goes in the New Testament. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about, that we've been talking about the last couple Sundays with the, the anniversary of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of that church in Wittenberg. What, when you say the word reformation, what's it talking about? It's about reforming turning back, repenting, reforming the church and calling her to repentance from false teaching, false worship, and false living. We still have to do the same thing today. The Reformation's not over. The church always has to be reforming and repenting where needed. The church today, just like this church in the first century, is often in need of the same kind of repentance 
from compromise with the world. There's, and what does Paul say in Romans 2? Don't be conformed to this world. There's always a pressure to be conformed. Do you know what you have to do to be conformed to the world? Nothing. Nothing. The world will put the pro, all the pressure on you that it can all the time. And we have to have our minds renewed by God's words so that we can be transformed into Christ's image and not conform to the image of the world. You know, there might not be a more apt description uh, in all of these letters so far of today's of many of today's supposedly evangelical Bible-believing churches that we've seen in, in the first three letters. Compromise, I think, is the, the hallmark of the American church in many ways these days. And our Lord still calls us to repent, to turn from such sinful compromises and turn back to him in faithfulness. And if not, what will he do? He will come in judgment and chastisement with the sword of his mouth. Question. Does Jesus still do that today? Or is that just a first century thing? Do we, you know, do we, 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 you know, we might know enough to say, well, God doesn't change, but he doesn't really do the same things he did in the Old Testament. Just look at the New Testament. Is there any example in the New Testament of Jesus coming in judgment with the sword of his mouth? I would say there are plenty. We've talked about A.D. 70 when we went through the book of Mark, but there's more than that. Think of Paul's words in a very familiar chapter to all of us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What does that chapter talk about? The Lord's Supper. Of all the places you could think of where it talks about Christ judging, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper and the practice of the Corinthian church, which was a compromised church, if ever there was one. 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 32, listen to Paul's words there. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he adds this little little nugget. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have what? Died. Died. They messed with the Lord's Supper, and Jesus judged them for it. He ch- and Paul tells them, in case you didn't know why this stuff happened. It kind of gives a whole new... Makes you kind of sit up in your chair a little bit. Like the Lord's Supper, it's something to be celebrated, but it's not something to be messed with and to be done the wrong way. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's a mercy of God when he does it. When he even has to chastise his people, it's for our good. But some of them died. You know, it's it's not that the, the story of in, in Acts chapter five. Remember the uh, Ananias and Sapphira that, that brought the money to the church, or they brought half of it to the church from selling their property. What happened? Makes you makes you kind of worry about taking the offering now, right? They, they dropped dead, not because they didn't give more, but because they lied about it. Jesus is very jealous for his church. But what about the good news? What does the Lord graciously promise to the church that repents and so overcomes or conquers? Now, notice. How does this church conquer? Because to the one who conquers, I'm going to give you know the, the hidden manna and this white stone. How do they conquer? By repenting. By repenting, turning back to Christ and rejecting false teaching, false worship, and false living. In verse 17, the Lord gives the promise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Hidden Hidden manna, another Old Testament picture. Another image plucked from the Old Testament from the time of Moses in the Exodus. You might, 
you know, we might think that in a lot of ways, I think this is the temptation that many people in church leadership feel the pressure of. We think, oh, we have to compromise with the world. We have to conform to some of the ways of the world in order to survive as a church. We don't get people to come in the doors by doing X, Y, and Z, you know, giving the so-called customer what they want. Customer is king, those kinds of ideas. Uh, I think that's, that's the temptation. But what does God promise? God promises he will provide. He will give us the hidden manna. What's the manna? The manna was the, the bread from heaven that the Israelites had on the 40-year journey to the promised land. Did it look like he was going to provide? No, but every day, every day God provided as they needed. God promises, the Lord Jesus promises to sustain us as we are faithful to him. We pray for our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 11. Even so, the Lord, who is the head of his church, who is the builder and sustainer and defender of his church, promises to provide for her and to give her the hidden manna to sustain us during our pilgrimage in this life, in this world of sin and misery. That's a promise. He, he will provide for you. He will provide for his church. And he promises to give us a new name written in stone, one that comes from him and cannot be erased or changed. What What's that name? I don't know. What exactly does it mean? I can't tell you what that exactly may mean, but it can be no doubt that it's a term of endearment. You don't give names to anybody. You give names, maybe nicknames to people that you love. It, it's a term of endearment. It shows that we are forever his people and that he is our God and that we have overcome the world and Satan himself through our faith in Jesus Christ, which the first John 5, 4 tells us that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith in Christ. May our Lord, by his spirit, work in us what is pleasing in his sight, that we might cling to him alone by faith and repent whenever and in whatever way he wills us to do. So to him be the glory. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that uh, we see. Uh, we can't help but see in many ways uh, a reflection of ourselves and of many churches around us uh, in these compromises that we are constantly being tempted uh, to, to, to cave into. And we ask that you would uh, work in us by your spirit, that you would give us uh, grace to, to repent where needed as individuals and as a church, that you would guard us from compromise with the world, with false teaching, with false worship and false living. Uh, give us grace to hold fast uh, to the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the faith of Christ and his name. And we do pray that if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, that is, uh, is yet still in their sins and does not yet know the, 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 the gift of eternal life through your grace, through faith in Christ, that you might today even open their eyes, just like you opened the eyes of Balaam to see his situation, that you might open their eyes, that they might see their sin for what it is, they might see the danger that it puts them in, and they might see and look to the mercy that is to be found nowhere except in Jesus Christ our Lord, that they might look to him by faith and have forgiveness and life eternal in his name. And we pray all these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.